the Skyflow Stoics podcast where presenters Robert Kuhn and Colin Hay present ancient Stoic philosophy to modern ears in the hope that people may find some inner freedom. I think that's us. Right, Massimo, I'll get it started. Uh, welcome to the Scotland Stoics. It was a great pleasure to get you on board. Um, when we asked you, you were you were you were quite accommodating in, in, in coming on, and um, and I know it's a wee bit of a difference of a time scale over here. Um, come back to New York, we're seven pm over here, news are two. Um, so thanks for coming on, and we'll start with a few questions. We we'll do it a wee bit different tonight, Massimo. It's um, what we're what we're intending to do is to get to know you a little bit better before we get into the 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 theory of stoicism and the 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 philosophy as as we as we know in that. Um, so I found it interesting when I was I was looking through your Wikipedia. <laughs> maybe not the best for maybe not the best for information, but I'll start off with the first question. I see sure, you not? born in Liberia. Can you give us a wee background as to how that was the case? Because obviously, I know you've been a Italian. How did how did the Liberia, right. you born in Liberia come about? Right. Um, this that was uh, because my father left Rome uh, when he was fairly young. You know, immediately after high school, to go work for a British company. As it turns out, uh, essentially helping building roads, supervising the building of roads in throughout several countries in in Africa. He was in. Uh, Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Sierra Leone, Ivory Coast, and, uh, and then eventually in Liberia. And uh, during one of his trips back to Rome, he met my mother, they fell in love, and my mother followed him to, Li- to Liberia, so I was born in Monrovia. But okay. um, yeah, but they decided that that was not the place uh, at the time to raise a kid. So a few months after I was born, uh, they went back to Rome, so, so I grew up in Rome. But it's, it's, it's kind of unusual uh, sort of background, yeah, from that yeah, perspective. Uh, that would kind of leads on to the next uh, question. Obviously, Rome being Rome, it's a place that many people would love to go and visit. Um, how is it? What was it like growing up in, in Rome? What was it? What was it like? The obviously the, the culture and that and so forth. You know, it's uh, sometimes we were talking about just before we, we started that uh, sometimes you kind of take for granted things, uh, especially in the place where you where you live, and. Um, in my case, I was lucky enough that, that my parents divorced, um, as it turns out. And normally, that's not a lucky thing. But in this particular case, it was mm-hmm. uh, because I grew up with my grandmother and my adoptive grandfather. And my adoptive grandfather had a thing for culture in general and for Roman history in particular. And so when I was a kid, uh, it would bring me around to see, you know, one of the very first things that I saw, for instance, uh, when I was very young was Marcus Aurelius' column right in the middle of, of Rome. Um, and, uh, you know, because uh, it turns out that, that it, the major bookstore in Rome was situated right there. And my, my grandfather would bring me there to pick a book every few weeks and, uh, of whatever I, I preferred. And then we had one of his favorite uh, cafes that we would sit down and, uh, for a break. And that cafe was right in front of uh, the Marcus Aurelius columns. So, so these, this whole thing, uh, you know, growing up with my grandfather was actually uh, probably led me to appreciate Rome far more than a lot of Italian kids who just take for granted. I mean, you know, like one of my younger brothers, uh, uh, he, he went to the Colosseum the first time when he, as an adult because I brought him there. Um, so it's like, yeah, but it is a cosmopolitan city. It is obviously an ancient city in terms in terms of history. So you can't uh, you can't avoid you know sort of soaking up that kind of atmosphere, especially when you become a teenager, late teenager, 
uh, and and uh, or early in your early twenties, then you start going around on your own and exploring the city on your own or your friends. Uh, so it would definitely was an interesting experience. But I think not not that different from what it is like to grow in other major uh, European cities. Uh, you know, Paris, London, uh, Edinburgh. You know, places like that. Thanks, that's excellent, Massimo. Um, obviously, how was your early schooling growing up in Rome? Because I see obviously we're going to lead on to some of the, the education and how you've excelled in that, but how was your early schooling? How did you go on with school in that? Did you, did you do well early or did you have to be kind of prompted um, to kind of become more academically inclined? So uh, public schools in Italy, which are, of course, actual public schools, they're not, they're not you know, private. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, public schools in Italy are actually pretty good um, in, and in Rome, or at least they were at the time. I mean, I don't, I can't vouch for, for the situation now because I haven't lived in the country for several decades at this point. But um, they were pretty good. And so even though I went to a, you know, completely middle, you know, average uh, high school, uh, I really had very, very good teachers. Uh, one of the, my best teachers, in fact, was my philosophy teacher. Uh, in this, in, in that, the particular type of high school that I took, which is called the Scientific Lyceum, which is typically preparatory for college, um, you had to take three years of philosophy. And my teacher was just brilliant. She just made the whole thing uh, come, come alive. Um, my interest was in biology at the time, was in science in general, in biology in particular. In fact, that's what I pursued as my first academic career later on. And there too, most, although not all, uh, my high school teacher were just just excellent, particularly my physics and mathematics uh, teachers. So, mm -hmm. so I learned a lot and actually enjoyed. I mean, for a lot of people, especially in the United States, um, people tell me that their high school experience is horrible um, for a number of reasons. The, the high schools don't work very well. The teachers are not that good or interested, or they're overwhelmed by other things. Uh, the, the social environment is is kind of strange. I had a perfectly fine, you know, sort of flying through the, this whole experience. Of course, I couldn't wait to get into college mm -hmm. because then I would study what I really uh, loved, uh, which was, you know, biology. But, um, but high school was, uh, you know, growing up in, in Rome was, uh, was a very good, very positive experience. So, yeah, it wasn't that difficult to sort of nurture my, my interests. As I said before, my, my grandfather started doing that when I was a kid, you know, buying me books. Uh, about whatever topic I was uh, interested in. Early on, I was very early on, I was interested in astronomy. So he bought me a small telescope when I was you know, in elementary school still. And, and a crucial thing is, for some reason, he figured that I, would, that I liked uh, to write, which is pretty unusual for you know, elementary school and early middle school kid. And so he bought me my first type, typewriter. Um, and I haven't stopped since. You know, I was like going on there, you know, typing uh, several hours every day or in, throughout the week. So, so the, those were very, yeah. very, very good, very positive aspects of my growing up in Rome. Yeah, I think it's fair to say you're quite prolific in the writing, Massimo, if you agree with that. Um, so I've seen that, um, obviously, the, the, the university, you see college, the university. What was it? What was the university you attended to, attended for your biology? And I'll sort of come back to that in a second. When you go. So I went to uh, one of the three universities in Rome, actually, I think now it's four of them, okay. but uh, the major, the big one, which is called La Sapienza, um, which just means wisdom. And um, it was, again, a very, very good experience. Um, my teachers in biology were very good. In fact, my very first professor 
uh, was a uh, Gianni, Gianni D'Amato was a, a botanist and he recognized immediately that I had an interest, a particular interest in scientific research and academic, and an academic career. So at the end of my first semester, he offered me a, a spot in his lab to do some research and, or to start learning how to do basic, basic research. And I accepted and sure enough, four years later, I graduated with, uh, you know, the Italian system essentially is, um, combines college and uh, what in most other countries is referred to as a master's degree. Yeah. So you had to, you had to develop a, uh, a thesis, uh, experimental thesis, which you then defend and that sort of stuff. So that was my first, uh, you know, entry into scientific research. The thesis uh, was published as a, as a couple of papers and that was sort of the beginning of my academic career at that point. So can I just go on that point? I've seen when I was doing a bit of research into you, was it the first PhD? Was that in genetics? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, after after college and you know this combination of college and masters, then yeah. I was faced with okay, what do we do now? And in order to pursue an academic career, and um, I applied in several places in Italy for a doctorate uh, degree. Yeah. So it, you know, so so it, which is a standard. Uh, uh, European style PhD. It's like three years, mm -hmm. essentially only research. You know, don't you don't do any teaching that sort of stuff, which is different from the American uh, approach to the to the same. And I was accepted at the University of Ferrara, which is in northeastern Italy. It's between Bologna and Venice. And uh, yes, that's where I did my first uh, graduate degree in uh, uh, ge yeah genetics, particularly in population and quantitative genetics. So I was doing a lot of statistical uh, analysis um, of my interest has always been in plant populations and in plant ecology and evolution. So I was, I was doing uh, research on plants and with a fairly large you know, component or quantitative stuff, which served me well later because uh, throughout my career, my career as a biologist, I was a, a very much a quantitative person uh, and I learned some of the fundamental skills there at the University of Ferrara. Mm -hmm. Gregor Mendel, who was he? Sorry, say that again? Gregor Mendel. Or Mandel, yeah. who was he? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, he was the, the very first geneticist uh, of the modern era. And, and his brilliancy was, in fact, uh, uh, in the fact that he realized that he had to apply quantitative methods uh, to the study of genetics. Because up to that point, uh, people had just been looking sort of for qu qualitatively, oh, the, the offspring of this, this cross looks like this. Uh, Mendel had this brilliant idea that, wait a minute, if we start counting things and if we start actually making, you know, uh, at least elementary statistics, yeah. statistics, we might get somewhere. And that's how he discovered the concept of gene. Of course, genes themselves were not identified as, as the uh, biological material known as DNA until 1953. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but Mendel identified the, the, the fact that there are these particulate, uh, you know, uh, uh, bits of something that he didn't know that however, are responsible for uh, um, for heredity. It was an interesting uh, thing from from his his, his his part because at the time Charles Darwin was wondering. You know, he was publishing the, about simultaneously he was publishing the Origin of Species, and Darwin uh, was wondering what the basis for heredity was. That was the major thing that was missing from his theory. And he didn't know, he was not aware of, of Mendel's work. And uh, it's, you know, one can speculate what might have happened if Darwin actually had become uh, aware of Mendel's work and the two had started, you know, collaborating or something like that. And, and I learned that when I, when I heard of this story, I learned that very early 
lesson for my academic career. Uh, the reason Mendel's work was not particularly well known, and we had to wait until 1900 uh, before it was rediscovered, is because it made two major mistakes from a point of view of an academic. One, he published in a small publication, a small journal that nobody was reading. And so, you know, it, it was ignored. And two, uh, he went to, into administration. He became an administrator, basically. Um, and, uh, and that was the end of his scientific career. So, so, so I... I made note in my mind of, you know, try not to publish in small journals and, and never, ever become an administrator. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. Uh, I've seen that your next PhD you did, uh, obviously biology, so that was a, a follow-up, obviously, to the geneticists and that. Um, and where did that take you? Did that take you to America? Was that, was that after? Yeah, that was an interesting story. Uh, sort of an unusual, I don't know about interesting, but yeah. certainly an unusual story. Um, so what happened was that after my doctorate in, in genetics at University of Ferrara, um, I applied for a fellowship to do research with the National Research Council, and mm -hmm. I was there for a couple of years. That was fine. But then at some point, I decided that, you know, it's, it's really time to broaden my horizons, and I need to go abroad either to another European country. Uh, you know, uh, the UK was a possibility. The Netherlands were another possibility. Germany or better yet, the United States, because the kind of research that I was doing, I was interested in nature nurture uh, uh, issues. So the interactions between gene and environment. Uh, and the best research, you know, the most cutting edge research was being done at the time in, in the United States. Um, so I was trying to figure out a way to get there. And um, I met at a, at a scientific conference, this guy, Carl Schlichting, who was at the University of Connecticut. And so I applied with him for a postdoc position, so a postdoctoral. Post uh, position, which is what you typically do after your, your doctorate. And uh, Carl was very interesting because he, he was very interested in, in what I was wanting to do. And he said, yeah, yeah, I would like you to come here, but I'm a, just a very recently appointed assistant professor. I don't really have money. I don't have a grant. I can't really pay a postdoc salary. Um, and he said, however, I can offer you a PhD position. And I, as a student, and I said, well, why would I want to do that? I, read, I just got my PhD you know, last year. Why would I want to do a second one? And Carl made a very uh, persuasive argument. He said, well, uh, you can come here and do whatever you want. You can do research on whatever the, the hell you want. Um, you're going to be my only student at, for the next two or three years, probably, because, you know, it takes time for a new, new uh, professor to get a, your, his career going. Uh, we can pay you more money than a regular graduate student, and we can allow you to teach less than a regular graduate student. I said, okay, fine, deal. It was one of the best decisions in my life, because uh, by the time I defended my PhD in evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut, uh, Carl and I had accumulated enough material that eventually got published over the years. Uh, we published, I think we published together something like 13 papers and one book. And to give you a sort of perspective, typically with a PhD uh, from an American university, you don't write a book, you don't get to write books. And the typical number of papers is like between three and five. So I actually, we actually produced like two and a half times more, two to three, two to three times more than it's typical. And uh, so he was right. He, this, this, this was an actually very good, uh, good decision. Yeah, mm -hmm. I definitely did not regret it. And I think which leads us on to the last uh, PhD, obviously the one that's probably influenced you the most that we can relate to is, uh, is the one on philosophy. How did that come about? 
So that also was an unusual story because after my PhD in uh, at the University of Connecticut, I actually did go on and do a re an actual real uh, postdoc at, at Brown University uh, on Rhode Island, on the east coast of the United States. And so my my biological career, my bio biology career, got started. I got a position at the University of Tennessee, which is in the southeast of the United States. Uh, and I was there first as an assistant professor, then I got tenure, then I became an associate professor, a full professor. That's the standard academic sort of career. And then at that point, something interesting happened. I kind of went through a midlife crisis, both personally <laughs> and, and academically, which is not unusual. I mean, by that time I was in sort of, well, it was a little earlier than usual, I suppose, because I was in my early 40s. Um, but it's typical for academics actually to get through to a certain point in their career, especially after tenure, and say, okay, well, now what? I, I need to do something different. You know, I, I thought like, well, my career is going well. My, my, my research is funded at a you know, good pace. I had graduate students, postdocs of my own. But do I really want to keep doing the same things for the next 30 years or so or whatever it is? Um, and the answer was very clearly no. This is not unusual. And so what happens is that people then typically start looking at neighboring fields. So I was in evolutionary biology. I might have switched to ecology or I might have gone into molecular biology or something like that. That's what a lot of my colleagues did. In my case, that didn't seem like particularly sort of exciting enough or something. And then something interesting happened, something serendipitous happened. The University of, Knoxville, uh, of Tennessee in Knoxville, where I was, the philosophy department hired a brilliant young philosopher um, of science, Jonathan Kaplan. He, Jonathan had just defended his um, dissertation at Stanford, and turns out his dissertation was on philosophical aspects of the nature-nurture debate, um, which means that he actually had read several of my papers in you know, a couple of my books. So when he came to campus, he looked me up, he called me and he said, hey, look, you know, I, I'm here, I'm, I'm new, and, and I know your work, I'd like to just get together for coffee and have a chat which we did, and we hit it off very well. Immediately, we became friends. We started collaborating on a series of uh, papers. Uh, he started coming to my, to my lab meetings and interacting with my graduate students. So things were going very, very well. And at some point I said, Jonathan, I got this crazy idea. How about, you know, I've been looking for something different to do, expanding a different direction. So how about I go back to school, enroll in the PhD program in philosophy here at the University of Tennessee, and you be my mentor. And Jonathan looked at me, I still remember, uh, this was over lunch, he said, um, how many classes of wine did you have? Um, because he was a junior professor without tenure, and I was a senior professor with tenure, and so that was a very unusual situation. And I said, well, you know, I don't drink at lunchtime, so it's like, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, he kind of came around the idea, we went to the dean, we asked for permission to do that, which was granted. And uh, so for the next three years, the following three years, I was running my lab in the morning, in early afternoon, you know, at grad, my graduate students, research, etc., and fortunately had a reduced teaching load because of my grants. And then in the afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, I was going across campus and taking philosophy classes. And during the weekend, I was working on my dissertation. In other words, for three years, I basically had no life as a result of that outside of, you know, what I, what I was doing there on campus. But it worked out very nicely. Um, so I did defend my thesis, which became a book. It's called uh, Making Sense of Evolution, published by the University of Chicago Press. And it was a, a book uh, on uh, philosophical analysis of, of uh, uh, the current state of evolutionary theory, essentially, and you know, where, it, where evolutionary biology stands as a, as a field. So that was fun. But the intention was not to move 
full-time to philosophy. The intention was just to keep going my, my lab and then on the side, uh, write philosophy books. But what happened a few years later as part of my personal life crisis, I moved to New York because I was getting a little sick and tired of small town uh, America. And, uh, you know, I happened to be working at the University of, um, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is on Long Island, and, and it's an, sort of in a suburban area, but it's only 40 miles from New York City. So I figured, okay, I, got, I have to move. But once I moved, I also had to find a job. And, uh, and so I thought, okay, let's find out. Uh, I'm going to apply to whatever jobs are available at a senior level. If it's biology, it's going to be biology. If it's philosophy, it's going to be philosophy. Turns out the first job that was available, available was at the City University of New York in philosophy. I applied. They got me. And so there it is. And, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm a philosopher full-time. I've been a philosopher full-time for the last 12, 13 years. That's excellent. The, before I get into the introduction of how you get into Stoicism, I just want a quick question. Uh, I was looking through your range of books. And I've heard your discussions on it before, but can you tell us what is pseudoscience, right? And why yeah. is it a problem before I move on to it? Yeah, so uh, when I still was in biology, I, was, I became interested in the problem of, in what philosophers call uh, the, the demarcation problem, the, the distinction between science and pseudoscience. And the reason was very practical. As I mentioned, I was at the University of Tennessee. Now, Tennessee is in, the, in, in what Americans call the Bible Belt. So it's full of creationists. And here I was as an evolutionary biologist, uh, and my class was probably like 80 or 90% creationists, right? And so I run immediately into these, these kind of you know, standard objections that creation is raised to evolutionary theory. And I, I consider creationism, of course, a pseudoscience. It's not, it's not like it's, it, 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 has, it has no, uh, uh, no basis in reality, but it's very popular in certain areas of the United States. And so I got interested in doing, in organizing public events, uh, something that's called Darwin Day, which has become actually popular. I was one of the er very early um, organizers of Darwin Day in, in Tennessee and then in, uh, throughout the United States. It's kind of, now it's become an international event. Usually it's on the, Darwin's birthday in February. And the, the reason was, you know, well, let's start teaching people about the, diff the, the nature of science, the difference between science and pseudoscience, et cetera, that, that sort of stuff. When I made the final, the move, the transition to philosophy and particularly philosophy of science, which is in the business of understanding how science works and, and when it fails, how science doesn't work. Well, one of the problems in philosophy of science is the demarcation problem. And I saw, ah, I thought, well, that's interesting. I've been interested in pseudoscience for a while. So now I can actually work on this as, as a sort of full-time thing. As a result, I published two books. One is um, for the general public. It's called Nonsense on Stilts. Uh, which is a exa general examination of uh, pseudoscience and why it matters uh, to, uh, you know, to the public, to everyday discourse. I mean, we're, we're seeing examples right now, uh, people who refuse to vaccinate themselves, for instance, because they believe in the pseudoscientific notion that vaccines cause autism, or uh, people who reject uh, you know, the notion of social distancing and wearing masks uh, during a pandemic because they think that it's, the gov it's a government conspiracy. That's another aspect of pseudoscience. So, you know, pseudoscience actually is, does have uh, negative consequences at an individual and societal level. So I thought that this was not only an interesting uh, area to develop as a scholar, but also it has actually practical applications. The second book I co-edited with my friend and colleague, Martin Baudry, who is at the University of Ghent, 
in Belgium, and it's called the Philosophy of Pseudoscience. And um, it kind of helped establish that actually as an independent field of scholarship within within philosophy. People, philosophers have been interested in pseudoscience before, but the notion that one can actually do serious research, sustained research, you know, scholarship on it uh, was kind of new, and it was kind of interesting to, to uh, get that one out. That's, that's really interesting, Massimo. Um, can you tell us uh, how you get your introduction to Stoicism and tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so that goes back to the, to the midlife crisis part. Uh, so we, we talked about the academic, uh, you know, aspect of it, but there was also a personal one. Again, nothing particularly surprising or uh, or unusual. But there was a particular year where I got kind of a, a multiple hits in terms of sort of personal situations. You know, my father died, which it happens, but uh, it's 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 always a fairly major event. Uh, my wife at the time divorced me, and I got a new job and new move to a different city. Now, any psychologist would tell you that one of those four things is enough to cause stress. Four of them simultaneously, like literally in the span of three or four months, that's a lot. Um, so I thought, okay, well, uh, how do I deal with this situation, with these kind of situations? And um, I was studying, for, I just finished start the, the, my PhD in philosophy. So I said, okay, well, if, if an answer is going to come to this kind of life-changing situation, that's got to be from philosophy. I mean, where, where else? And um, as a result, I started sort of deliberately looking into philosophies of what I call philosophies of life, which, of course, Stoicism is one, one example. And um, now, backtracking for a minute, when I was growing up in, in Italy, of course, I was in Rome. So my family was Catholic. And so I grew up Catholic although very mildly so. I mean, we were, we were going on to church only in Christmas and Easter, you know, that sort of stuff. But still, it was, it was Catholic. You know, I went to catechism. I, you know, learned the basic stuff. By the time I got into high school, I rejected uh, that notion because my priest was simply not able to give me decent answers, comprehensible answers to basic questions. Like, for instance, I still remember that I asked him about uh, transubstantiation. So this, this notion that uh, when you take communion, you not metaphorically, but literally, you're eating the flesh of, of Jesus and drinking the blood of Jesus. And I said, how does that work? Because it feels to me like wine and bread. So um, try to explain this to me or, or give me some kind of you know, un intelligible explanation of the notion of the fact that God is one or, and three. Mm -hmm. It's like, that seems to be like a basic contradiction. Remember, I took um, uh, basic philosophy in high school. So I said, that seems like a basic contradiction of, the, the laws of logic, it, something cannot be both one and three. And so what the hell is going on there? Because my priest was not giving me any reasonable answer. So I said, okay, that's it. I'm out. And ever since I considered myself a secular humanist, the secular humanism was like, okay, this, this kind of makes sense. It, uh, uh, you know, I subscribe to the general notions. Essentially, you can think of secular humanism as a, a philosophy that supports what then became the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, right? So, so uh, all of that stuff I'm in agreement with. But it turns out when the personal life crisis came, secular humanism was completely useless. It was not giving me any practical advice on what to do with my life. Yes, I'm in favor of human rights. I'm in favor of um, you know, universal education and healthcare and all that, but that doesn't help me as a person uh, try to figure out how to live through a year where all of these other things had been happening to me, right? 
that's why I purposefully say, okay, let's sit down and start, start take a systematic look at, at what else is available out there. There must be some philosophy of life that is available. My first stop was Buddhism because a lot of a number good number of friends had told me you know you, you might want to look into buddhist philosophy as from from that perspective it's really very useful in terms of personal ethics and so on which it is uh to a lot of people but it didn't really uh uh click with me for a number of reasons one of one of which was that the, the language was alien to me obviously because i didn't grow up in india china or Japan, and so the, the kind of language was too mystical from my perspective. It's like too a little a little too metaphorical. Um, I respect people that are that that for, for for whom it works, but it didn't work for me. And also, of course, there was a problem with the metaphysics. I mean, karma, reincarnation, and all that sort of stuff. No, I'm an atheist. I don't believe I believe that we die and then we die, you're done. So there's no such thing as karma, reincarnation, something like that. So I said, okay, well that was interesting, but not going to work. Then I quickly realized that the answer was going to come from, from what philosophers refer to as virtue ethics, right? So virtue ethics, because virtue ethics, which originated in ancient Greece and Rome, because virtue ethics is about developing your own character, you know, giving you guidance, specific guidance, you know, particular guidance about, about how to live your life. So it's like, okay, that sounds interesting. And of course, when you start doing, you know, looking into virtue ethics, the first stop, first stop is Aristotle because he wrote the book, you know, the Nicomachean ethics is essentially the book about virtue ethics. But that didn't do it. First of all, it's too theoretical. Aristotle has nothing at all about how to actually live your life. It tells you a bunch of interesting things from a theoretical perspective, but you know, uh, apparently he wasn't that interested in the, in the practice for one thing. But also Aristotelian virtue ethics is fairly uh, aristocratic, right? So for Aristotle, virtue, meaning excellence of character and things like that is, is important, it's crucial, it's fundamental. You cannot live a good life, you, you cannot live a eudaimonic life as the Greeks uh, referred to it without virtue. However, he also was very clear that you cannot flourish in life, uh, you cannot have a eudaimonic life unless you have some externals, particularly a little bit of education, a little bit of wealth, and even a little bit of good looks. And I said, okay, then I'm screwed, that's it. Um, that's, not gonna, that's not gonna happen. Um, it's, it just felt too aristocratic for, for being, um, which is not surprising because Aristotle was from an aristocratic Macedonian family. You know, his, his father was the personal physician uh, to, the, to the king of Macedon. So, you know, again, aristocracy makes sense. Well, then after that, the next stop was Epicurus. Part of the reason, a major part of the, the reason for that is because secular humanists themselves often are into Epicureanism and they're into Epicureanism for good reasons. Uh, mostly two reasons. The, the, the metaphysics works fairly well, right? The Epicureans were atomists, so they, they were materialists. They thought that the world is just made of atoms bumping into each other. That goes well with a, a secular humanist perspective. And in terms of ethics, there was a lot of, Epicurus put a lot of emphasis on friendship. I said, oh, that's, that sounds good. That, that's, really, that's really interesting. So I started looking more in detail in Epicurus, and then I hit the, the wall. I hit the problem, which is the major goal of an Epicurean life is to live without pain, especially not just physical, but especially mental pain. And Epicurus was very clear that one of the major things you can do to avoid pain or to minimize pain in life is to get the hell out of any social and political involvement. You know, being your little garden with your friends, but forget politics and society. And I said, nah, that's not going to work. 
that that's not i don't think that human a meaningful human life actually sh should i really think you should include some kind of you know political and social involvement so that was out so that's where i was and then one day i saw this thing of all places on my twitter feed that said help us celebrate stoic week and i looked at it and i said what the hell is stoic week and why would anybody want to celebrate the stoics and then I thought about it, wait a minute, Stoicism, that's also a kind of virtue ethics. Stoicism, that's Marcus Aurelius. I read Marcus in meditations in college. I thought it was an interesting book. Um, Stoicism, that's Seneca. So wait a minute, when I was in high school, I took Latin and actually translated Seneca, but I never put the two together. I never actually even thought that, that Seneca and Marcus Aurelius actually were talking about the same kind of stuff. And Epictetus, what the hell is Epictetus? Why did I go through an entire program in you know phd program in philosophy and even took courses in ancient philosophy and never heard of epictetus like how is this even possible so i signed up for stoic week and sure enough um you know like the first or the second day one of the readings was about was from epictetus and as soon as i read that it's like it really clicked it's like holy crap this guy where have you been for for my whole life because this guy really spoke to me plain language good sense of humor, very, very practical in terms of applications. And so by the end of, the, of, of Stoic Week, I actually contacted some of the organizers, particularly uh, you know, Don Robertson and um, I think Chris Gill at the time. And I said, look guys, I'm a professional philosopher. I, I started doing this thing. This is interesting. What would you suggest if I were to commit to do this for another couple of months? Because as you know, usually Stoic Week is like in, uh, in the fall, so in October, November. That year was in early November. So I said, I want to try to do it, try, try and through the end of the year. And, and they were very kind that, you know, they responded and said, well, you can start here and so on. So I did, I committed for another couple of months. Then at the end of the year, I said, this is really great. This is, this is really making a difference. My friends were, uh, and, and family were telling me that I was much more calm and much more focused about things. It's like, okay, I'm going to commit for yet another year. And then here we are now, several years later, and we're still talking about it. Oh, it's excellent. I was very similar experience to that, actually. Um, can you, this is, I've always had a stumbling block with us, right? Um, living in accord with nature. Please define or explain. Yeah. It's always something I've come up against I've struggled with, so can you... Yeah, that's always a stumbling block, right? Because so I, I think sometimes I had this sneaky suspicion that the Stoics did this on purpose. They came up with a bunch of these pity phrases like live according to nature. Yeah. Um, that could easily go on a bumper sticker, right? It's like you, you can put it on your car. Um, and I think they did it on purpose because that clearly the message is not clear. Is like, well, what does that mean? Um, and I think they did it as a conversation starter. It's like, well, Somebody will go and say, what does that mean? It's like, well, let me tell you. And then we'll give him a lecture, you know, an hour long. Um, I don't know if this is true, but I like to think of Zeno, uh, you know, going around uh, Athens, thinking, thinking on the, uh, you know, acting in all those lines. So living according to nature is a fundamental pillar of Stoic philosophy. And um, it's, it's there from the beginning. Zeno was the first one to, to put the phrase in writing in, in his uh, in one of his books, which unfortunately are lost, but we do have some fragments from Diogenes Laertes. Both Cleantes and Chrysippus, the second and third head of the store, use the phrase. Uh, Seneca uses it several times. 
Marcus Aurelius uses several times. Epictetus, not so much, but, it, but it's, it's been there basically from the beginning through, throughout the history of Stoicism. And there are two major interpretations of this. For, so actually, first of all, we should talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you should be running naked into the middle of the woods and hug trees. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what it's about. More importantly, and this is actually something that people often get wrong about Stoicism, especially from the outside. Um, it's not an appeal to nature. It's not to say that everything that is natural is therefore good. Right. Because if that were the case, I mean, the Stoics are very clear that that is not what they mean. Uh, because there are, there are all sorts of things that are natural to human beings, and yet they're not good. For instance, uh, you know, getting, getting angry uh, at certain situations is natural, but the Stoics are very obviously clear, it's particularly Seneca, that that is not a good thing. So, so it, it, they clearly don't mean that things that are natural are therefore good. And it's a good thing that they don't mean that because that's a basic logical fallacy called the appeal to nature. And they were especially Chrysippus, were very good logicians, so you'd be surprised if, the, if they would commit, you know, commit a, a logical fundamental logical fallacy and put it right at the, at the, at the basics of, of, of their philosophy. What do, what do they mean then? Well, they mean a couple of things, and actually there was a disagreement between Cleantus and Chrysippus about this. Um, it means live life in accordance with universal nature, but also live, live life in accordance with human nature. Now, if you allow me for a few minutes, because this is a really important uh, concept and, and it's lot, so many people get it wrong. I mean, there are two different ways to cash this out. One is the ancient version uh, and the other one is the modern version that, at least, that people like Lawrence Baker and myself are, are putting, being putting forth. And I think there is a significant difference between the two, the two versions. So the ancients thought that living according to cosmic nature uh, made perfect sense because they, they were pantheists. They believed that the, the universe was the same thing as God. And the universe God was capable of, it was a living organism capable of reason, the famous logos, right? Yeah. So basically what they thought was that whatever happens in the universe, including whatever happens to us, is for the good. Not in the Christian sense, because the Christians think that whatever happens is part of God's plan and God loves and cares about each one of us individually. The Stoics didn't think that at all. What happens for the universe is good to the, for the universe, but that doesn't mean that it's good for you specifically. In fact, Epictetus is very clear about this. When he, he uses a, a famous metaphor, he says, imagine you're a foot that is about to step in, in the mud, right? That's unpleasant. As a foot, you don't want to step in the mud. But because you know that you're connected to our organism and the, the body has to cross the path and the path happens to be muddy, then you do it gladly. You don't do it gladly because it's good for you. It's not. But it is good for the body. And so you, you, it, makes, it makes sense for you to, to actually do it. That's the way the Stoics thought about the, the uh, connection between human nature and universal nature. Whatever happens to us, we should be not only accepted you know, fate, you don't only accept fate, you actually embrace it. You actually love your fate as the, the famous phrase, uh, which came out uh, after much, much later by Nietzsche, Amor Fati, uh, puts it, right? Why? Well, because we're part of these universal organisms. So whatever, whatever we do, it's good for the, for the cosmos. And, you know, what else could you ask about your life uh, other than doing something that's good for the cosmos? The problem, of course, is that most of us modern Stoics are not pantheists. Um, and as a scientist, I 
cannot wrap my, my, my mind around the notion of the universe conceived as a living organism. The universe is not a living organism. Uh, there are living organisms within the universe, obviously, but the universe itself is just a set, a, a set of dynamic processes that are regulated by, by what we call laws of nature. So, um, so I, ca I, don't, I can't go in the direction in which the ancient Stoics were going, but I still can retain the notion of living according to universal and human nature, except that it now means something a little bit different. In terms of human, uh, sorry, in terms of cosmic nature, Lawrence Baker, uh, the author of A New Stoicism, actually puts it, put it best. He says, essentially, for a, new, for a modern Stoic, what that means is to pay attention to the universe as it is and act accordingly, as opposed to engaging in wishful thinking about what, how the universe should work, right? So the way he puts it very simply is like, follow the facts, particularly the scientific facts about the universe. You have to, as a Stoic, you have to accept um, factual knowledge, scientific knowledge about the universe. The universe doesn't work in the way we would like it to work. It just is the way it is. And uh, it is imperative that you both understand and live accordingly, meaning that you live respecting the, the, the constraints that the universe, the laws of physics, laws of biology, etc., put on you. In terms of human nature, in modern terms, of course, we, we do talk about human nature, but human nature is not, as the ancients thought, you know, some kind of out, uh, you know, outgrowth of the universal nature. What it is, it's you know, we are animals, we're social animals that evolved uh, in a, on a particular planet in a particular point, at a particular point in time. However, the two fundamental things that, the two fundamental aspects that the Stoics thought, the ancient Stoics thought, separate us from every other living organism on earth still hold even according to modern science, to modern molecular biology, uh, sorry, modern evolution biology. And those are two things. We're highly social and we're capable of reason, right? Those are the two things that actually the ancient Stoics really latched on to, especially Seneca and Marcus Aurelius later on, uh, to essentially put forth the notion that a life lived according to nature means a life in which you use reason to improve social living, to, imp to improve the human cosmopolis, right? And that one, as a modern Stoic, I can be completely on board with because it doesn't, it's in agreement with uh, a modern scientific outlook on things. It is true that human beings are the most social, most complex social animals uh, on planet Earth. And it is also true that we're by far the ones that, uh, that are more capable of engaging in rational uh, thinking and especially in rational discourse. Other animals do things that are kind of resemble, uh, there, are, there, are, there are other social animals, obviously, social insects for sure, but especially other social primates. And some other animals do engage in, it seems like they engage in some basic level of, of rational uh, thinking, but nothing compared to what human beings can do. Right. I mean, there's no animal that would be having this conversation at this point talking about philosophy of life and how to live your life and that sort of stuff. We can, and so it is incumbent on us to actually do it and follow through. That's brilliant, Marshall. Thanks for that. Um, I see that well, the time's catching up with a wee bit, so I'm going to I'll give you maybe bypass a question or two, but can you um, describe the relationship with the cardinal virtues and what do you find the hardest one to adhere to? I, can give Sorry, I, missed you, I missed part of what you said, so could, repeating. You, could you give us a, a brief description of what the cardinal virtues are in Stoicism and what one do you find the hardest to adhere to? Oh, that's a good question. Um, 
Well, the, so one of the things that, that um, I've, I've been asked very often during, uh, you know, interviews about, about my books is uh, what isn't, isn't stoicism a really hard philosophy to practice in general, you know, um, and I'm, I'm going to get to some of the practices, specific practices in a minute, but in general. And I said, well, uh, no more than, than Buddhism or Christianity or, or Confucianism. I mean, if you really want to be a good Buddhist, a serious Buddhist or a serious Christian, that's pretty hard. Uh, because, you know, it require, they require a lot of, of you. Now, of course, you can be a sort of a, you know, um, superficial level involvement with, with these philosophy, in which that's, case, that's the case also for Stoicism. But if you want to practice, in, in, you know, seriously, that is, in fact, demanding. Uh, after all, we're talking about literally a philosophy of life. We're talking about something that applies literally everything you do throughout your life every, every day. So, yeah, it is demanding. It, it should be demanding. I mean, that's, you know. Now, in terms of exercises, um, you know, as you know, with my friend Greg Lopez, we, we, we wrote this book, a handbook for new Stoics. Actually, in the UK, I think it's published as Living Like a Stoic or something like that. I don't know why they changed the title, but just to make it more confusing. Um, but, um, and we proposed 52 of those exercises. The, the, the way we do it, we organize it according to the three disciplines of Epictetus. So, one set of exercises uh, concerns uh, desire and aversion, a second set concerns action, and a third act, uh, set concerns uh, assent. All of those exercises are based on, on quotations from the original texts, mostly Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca, of course, but also Musonius, Rufus, uh, Hierocles, you know, some of the so-called minor Stoics, minor only because we don't have a lot of their writings, unfortunately, that survive. Um, and the exercises vary in, in difficulty. And I think, however, the difficulty varies from person to person. I mean, there are some exercises that are more difficult for, for in specific individuals and, and less so for other individuals. We set up a Facebook page of kind of, uh, to, to support people that actually go through the book or through parts of the book and want to practice the exercises. And we occasionally we do run into somebody who says, wait, this, this was really difficult. Yeah. Um, and and, so, we, and so we try to, to help out. I don't know. I have my favorite ones, and some of the fav my favorite ones are uh, fairly difficult um, to do consistently. They're not difficult in, in a sort of conceptual fashion. They're all pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward, right, in terms of what to do. They're difficult however, to implement. Like, for instance, one of my favorite is try to go for an entire week without ever using the words good or bad or their synonyms uh, applied to anything other than virtue or character, right? It's really difficult because uh, you slip up constantly. You say, oh, I had a really good meal last night. No, no, you didn't. Uh, you had a nutritious meal that was, you know, stimulating and so on and so forth, but not good. Um, oh, I saw a really bad movie. No, you didn't. You saw a movie that was not well done from a cinematographical perspective, that the, the script was not, uh, you know, as, as it should be, but not bad because that doesn't apply. Those are all preferred or dispreferred indifference. So that's a, it sounds like a silly exercise, by the way, but it actually is, in fact, uh, uh, one of the most interesting ones because, of course, the point is to drive home this clear distinction that the Stoics make between virtue as the only true intrinsic good and everything else that can be selected or not, preferred or not, because it, it does have value. Uh, but it's, it's not as important as virtue because it doesn't affect your character, right? It doesn't. Uh, and so even practice, uh, stoic practitioners 
uh, very often slip up in, in, into sort of a more Aristotelian uh, way of looking at things where they value uh, externals a bit too much. And this is not a new thing. Uh, Epictetus in the discourses complains about some of his students. He says, you know, you guys play and being Stoics here in my classroom. And then I, you go out there and I see you being Aristotelians. And so it's like, <laughs> so what, what gives there? <laughs> you're, not, you're not serious enough about, about this stuff. So that's one of my favorite exercises. Um, one of the most difficult for, for a lot of people, because we live in the consumer, uh, consumer society, is an exercise that it's actually inspired by Socrates. Um, Diogenes Laertius says that uh, Socrates used to go through the, through the Agora, uh, through the Athenian market, you know, which was, of course, pl plenty of goods to buy. And uh, he, he didn't buy anything. And he would get on the other side and he would say, wow, there are so many things that I don't need. Right. And so the exercise, as Greg and I propose it, is try to go for an entire week without buying anything other than basic food necessities. Right. Mm -hmm. basic, just the basic stuff. You, you want to eat, for sure. But don't buy anything, or either online or offline, for a week. Not forever, just for a week. Turns out it's really difficult because we, we live, especially in the United States, um, we live in a society that is highly consumerist, uh, where, you know, when I moved to the United States first in the, in the 1990s, I, I paid attention to what in my mind, in my experience, were some of the major differences between, a, you know, what, what I would call a typical European culture and the American culture. And one of the things that was different was I never heard before the phrase retail therapy. This notion that if you feel bad, here's a simple way to feel good. Just go to the mall and buy something. It's like, Really? <laughs> what? What the hell? I mean, I I take it that this is good for the companies that selling you. They're selling you goods for sure. But seriously, and yes, Americans are very serious about retail therapy. It, it's a it's a thing. Um, and uh, and so that exercise that I just described is one of those things that clearly counter uh, counters uh, retail therapy. It also counters something else. Modern psychologists have been able to describe this thing that it's called um, the hedonic treadmill uh, they discovered that basically what what happens when you buy stuff when you when you do retail therapy is that uh, we get used to the new things very quickly and and then you crave something else which again works very well for the companies that want to sell you the stuff right so you you buy a new iphone let's say you're all excited for a few days like oh i got my new iphone and then you know a week later two weeks later now it's just my phone uh, now I need something else uh, to, to get me excited, right? And then that also becomes, uh, you know, an, an ordinary object. So I need something else. So that's why it, it's, it's called the hedonic treadmill, right? It's, it's about pleasure, hedonism, uh, and it's a treadmill. You keep going on it and you, you're not going anywhere. You're not getting anywhere. Well, one way that even modern psychologists uh, suggest to reset the hedonic treadmill is to occasionally do without things. Right. And so a classic type of, of stoic exercises, which you find in Seneca very clearly, uh, is the self-deprivation exercises. Right? So for a week, don't buy anything or fast for a day or two or abstain from, from drinking alcohol for a day or two. You know, wh whatever, whatever it is that, that works for you or that, that you need to work uh, on. If you're too prone to buy stuff, then 
then use the don't buy anything for a week exercise. If you tend to be a little bit too intemperate at the dinner table, then, then go fasting a day or two a week, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. And, um, and so there is very good empirical evidence from modern psychology that these things actually do work. That's really interesting, Massimo. Um, I want to ask you maybe one last question before we, we kind of wrap up. Um, the, I've got, I know Jerry's on tonight, so it's more kind of related to Jerry. He's kind of relatively new to Stoicism. So what would you suggest for some like kind of new source material? I know you've got a lot of stuff yourself. Donald Roberts has got a lot of stuff. But maybe some other stuff like the ancients or so forth, he can give some advice on to, to start him in his uh, reading. So... Yeah, so uh, that, that is a, that's a good question about, you know, what should one read and what should one go about in terms of sort of learning more and practicing Stoicism. We, the first thing is we need to remember Stoic, Stoicism is mostly a practice, right? So you don't actually need to learn. I mean, I'm saying this against my own interest because I, you know, I, I've written three books. Uh, the next one actually is coming out in, in, in September. And, and so it's, again, my own interest, but against my own interest. But... Stoicism is mostly practice, so you really don't need to read a lot. That said, if you are into a philosophy of life, you naturally want to know more about it. You naturally want to go both to the original sources and to the, uh, the, to the modern incarnations of this stuff, right? And so I would say, I keep changing my mind about this, um, about what sort of to suggest to people, but I would say in terms of ancient sources, start with three. Uh, Seneca's letters to Lucilius, particularly the University of Chicago Press translation that came out a few years ago, which is excellent. Um, Epictetus' discourses, don't start with the Enchiridion because the Enchiridion is more difficult. The Enchiridion is very short. So a lot of people start with the Enchiridion because, oh, it's short. I can read this thing very quickly. I know, but it kind of assumes that you have a lot of background uh, before you actually start reading it. So don't. Go with the discourses. Uh, the best modern translation of the discourses is Robin Hart for Oxford University Press. And then, of course, Marcus Rudy's Meditations. Again, there, there are a number of good translations. Uh, I think the best one available out there is Robin Hart, uh, same person. Uh, also, again, the uh, Oxford Classics uh, version. So I would say those three. There is a lot of other stuff that one can read. Right, um, but those three are really ought to be present in any Stoic practitioner's bookshelf, uh, and, and and you should go and and they don't necessarily need to be read cover to cover. They're actually meant to be read. Not none of those three. They're not a, they're not uh, you know systematic expositions of Stoicism. You can actually open them at pretty much any point, just like you would. I mean, sorry, forgive me for the analogy, but just like you would do for the Gospels if you're a Christian, right? You just open it at random. You don't read them cover to cover. Uh, you, read them, you open it up and say, oh, what does that say? And how does that relate to my life? How does that, what, is, what does Epictetus mean here? And what can, uh, what can that tell me about how to live my own life? So that's in terms of ancient sources. Uh, in terms of modern stuff, uh, you know, a few years ago, there was very little out there, but now there is kind of an embarrassment of riches. Um, and so uh, I would say certainly at least one of the books by uh, Don Robertson. I mean, his most recent one, one of course, is uh, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, but I still think that one of his early ones uh, on, um, uh, of course, now this, the title escapes me, but it came out a number of years ago and it's about you know, the, the, how to live a good life. Uh, it's actually a very, very good one. It's got very practical 
uh, sort of approach, approach because because he's he's a cognitive behavioral therapist, and so he has a, he has this very practical approach in mind. Um, John Sellers, I think, is one of the authors that really ought to be in any, uh, you know, uh, on any bookshelf uh, modern, uh, from, from a modern Stoic perspective. I would say particularly is Stoicism. It's just called Stoicism. Um, that came out a few years ago. Um, it, it does have a new one that is very recent and it's very short and in, in, to, the, to the point. And so that's, a, that's, that's fine. Um, but I think Stoicism is actually one of his best. And um, another one that he published called The Art of Living. Uh, which is meant at, for a little bit more of an academic audience, but it's actually very easy to read. And it's a very easy read for the general public. And it really gives you this notion of stoicism as the art of living. Um, and um, so I, I would say those are, are definitely the top of, of my list. Brilliant, Massimo. Massimo, can I just ask a quick question? Can you be able to hold off for a few more minutes to see if anybody yes. would like to come in with a question? Uh, yeah. Does anybody want to come in with a question for Massimo? Uh, Colin, do you, want, do you like to unmute yourself, mate? Thanks. Um, <clears throat> it's just about your uh, stolen over, Massimo, and the great courses stuff that you've recently submitted. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? And do you think there's a place for a modern Stoic school? Uh, yes, that's interesting. Uh, that's an interesting question. So to some extent, we do have modern Stoic schools, right? Not, not officially, I mean, not, not anything that you can uh, sort of go and, and, and get your diploma. Um, and, but we do have kind of unofficial uh, schools. I mean, the, the whole modern Stoicism group it, for all effective purposes functions as a modern Stoic school. Uh, we have a number of teachers, uh, like including Don Robertson and, and uh, Greg Sadler and a number of people. Um, I found, I, I started out this thing called the Stoa Nova uh, a few years ago, which essentially it's a, it's a webpage with a bunch of resources, but um, you can go there and now, now the Stoa Nova, which is just me, it's not like there's nobody else wor working on it, but it now offers, you know, online courses, uh, uh, a number of other resources that are available for people, uh, books, of course, and stuff like that. Um, and so, so to some extent, we do have a, um, and then we have a, num a number of local stores, right? There's something called the Stoic, the Stoic Fellowship, uh, which was actually started by my friend Greg Lopez and a couple of, and a couple of other people. And that one is an organization that tracks local groups uh, and helps local groups get started uh, provides materials uh, and stuff like that. And to some extent, that's really the ancient model, isn't it? Um, that is, you have either individual teachers like Epictetus or a, a location like the Stoa in, in Athens where multiple people go and interact. And I think that, that that model works very well also in a modern context uh, as opposed to a more, more rigid structure, uh, right? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't favor really necessarily sort of starting in any kind of official Stoic school because the, the, the very word official seems constraining and seems like a little, well, who's, who's, who's the Pope of Stoicism here? You know, who, who gets to decide what, uh, you know, what we teach and what we don't. Of course, there's one major difference between the way in which modern Stoics work and as distinct to the ancient one, and that's the online presence, right? I mean, we couldn't be doing this if we were not for uh, you know, the ability to do, uh, you know, videos uh, in person, in, um, sorry, in live video. The social, social media uh, help out from, help from that perspective. As we all know, social media 
have a, are a mixed bag kind of thing. You know, you, you find all sorts of crap, unfortunately, out there. But if you're discerning, you also find a lot of good stuff. I mean, the, the Facebook book uh, group that um, Don Robertson uh, organizes, you know, and facilitates, I think the last time I checked, it was over 70,000 people. And, and he's incredibly, well, a lot of 17,000, yeah. I'm sure. And, 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 you know, and he's incredibly active on that. I don't know how he finds the time to, to do that sort of stuff, but um, um, there are a number of other groups. I, I have a much smaller one, which is a, also on Facebook, which is a private group, meaning that you can search for it, but then if you, if you want to join, you join it, it's actually private. So other people from the outside cannot uh, look at what people post. And the reason for that, it's on purpose, because I like to keep the discussion smaller to a smaller group of people it's more uh, conducive to open, you know, frank discussions about issues and stuff like that, uh, rather than an open, open forum. But they bo both of those things actually serve a function. So in terms of uh, uh, stoic schools, I think we're doing pretty well from that perspective. I will really support, I really support the Sto uh, Stoic Fellowship uh, initiative, uh, particularly because it's, that's the notion. It's like a capillary action on the, on the ground Everybody then can do it. We provide the resources for people to do it, but then everybody can do it as they prefer. And if that if it doesn't work for them with a particular group, they can go on and start another one. That's it's fine. Thanks, Massimo. Um, Jerry or Brian, would you like to give Massimo a quick question? Yeah, on you go, Jerry. Just unmute yourself. Uh, Massimo, you mentioned having a online group that goes through the manual that you've written. And I got the book and I'm starting it, but I was wondering which group that was. Uh, so there is a, uh, it's a, it's a Facebook group, but again, it's, an, it's, a, it's another closed book, uh, okay. group. So you can find, if you search um, with the title of the book, actually the, the American title, Handbook for New Stoics. Okay. On Facebook, you, you should find us. And if you don't, uh, just feel free to send me an email and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the direct uh, URL. And that one was started right when the book was published uh, by Greg and I, and it's been going on now for a bit, about a year and a half. We actually went through the entire 52-week cycle. And now what it is, is new people coming on, either look at discussion you can search the group and find discussions pertinent to any particular week or you can just post your your question and then either i or greg or somebody else who's gone through uh the thing would actually help you out and respond to it's like okay this is this yeah i also found that problem or here's how i did it you know that sort of stuff so it's become okay. now a more gen general discussion group but it's not a general it's not meant to be a general stoicism discussion group is really focused on the exercises okay thank you yep Thanks, Jerry. Brian, Brian, you're last. Do you want to ask um, Massimo a question? Uh, no, no questions. I'd just like to thank you all um, for this event. Um, on, on a strange note, I'm, I'm very surprised at the low number of attendees. Um, it was advertised widely. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, is, Sorry, is, at this point in time, for the past half an hour, the, the group you just mentioned on the handbook is actually ongoing right now, has been for half an hour. So maybe people are in right. there, I'm recording it. So we had, we had competition. That's right. Yes. Sir. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Thanks very much. No, it was fun. And you know, as of course, the, as the Stoics would say, what is up to us is to put forth these kind of things, organize them and get together. What is not up to us is who's going to show up.
Yeah. Um, We've got it recorded Massimo, so I'm sure we can put it out for other people to see at a future, future time. Can I just ask one last quick question before you go? Sure. Um, can you tell everybody where to find you and what kind of work you've got? Yeah, so the major place is the major places so to find... Sorry, uh, you kind of, um, I lost it there for a second because of the connection. But um, the major two uh, places where you can find me are, uh, there's a website called uh, MassimoPilutri.com, just one word, MassimoPilutri. And there you basically find everything that, is, that I do. Uh, all my, you know, links to all my uh, essays, papers, books, uh, podcasts, you name it. The, the, the whole shebang is there. So, and there's a, it's not only about stoicism, there's a, there's a section about biology and there's a section about philosophy, general philosophy. But most of it actually, more than half of it is about stoicism. Um, so it's uh, something to, to check out. And then on Twitter, is my, my major, major social medium is Twitter and I am at mpilucci, M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. -C -C Thanks a lot, Massimo. It's been an honor having you on. Hopefully we can get you on again in the future. Brilliant stuff. Sounds man. good. Thank All you right, Have a good Everybody one, guys. Have a nice night. Great stuff. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.